Amen. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 20 today. We're going to finish up this chapter. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word as we acknowledge that it is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is the Word of the true and the living God. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15 is our text. Listen now to the Word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then... Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Do you remember, uh, do you remember that night that we were outside in the pavilion? It was an evening service. <laughs> And it was a beautiful night, I recall. The birds were sweetly singing and the crickets were chirping and the sun was going down. And we had just sung some great hymns by request and the potluck was, was ready behind us. And I was preaching that night. And as you may recall, on this one particular Sunday evening service, right in the middle of my sermon, the rain began to fall really hard, somewhat unexpectedly. And the rain was so loud off the top of the pavilion that I had to stop my sermon halfway through. And I was, I was anxious about that because if I, if I feel that I want to preach something, I, uh, I don't want anything to get in my way of, of finishing up that message. And that night I had to stop in the middle of the sermon. Do you remember that? Nod your head if you were, if you were there for that one. And so I stopped the sermon midway through and I said the last amen and we went on and we had a nice potluck and we all had a little laugh because as soon as I said amen, the rain stopped. And I was robbed of that occasion. I was robbed. And I remember distinctly the text was Revelation 13 where it is mentioned that there is a book of life. And so today I have the opportunity to recapture that moment that was lost because once again in our text we have before us a reference to the book of life. And so what I want from you today is I want you to promise me that you're going to help me to recapture the moment that was lost in that pavilion evening service by giving me your life and death attention this morning because this text is really crucial in the book of Revelation. I mean monumentally crucial to this book of of Revelation. And so I'm just going to ask you, I don't usually do this, I'm going to ask for your fixed attention this morning If you are distracted in any way, I want you to throw off that distraction and fix your attention on this text. It's too important to miss a second opportunity to talk about the book of life. If you are recalling right now that you left the oven on, text your neighbor and then turn off your phone. I promise you your house is not going to burn down in the next 40 minutes or so, all right? If your phone causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life without Wi-Fi than to have two messages and enter into hell where the worm does not cease, right? You've heard something like that before, I trust, elsewhere. (laughs) Fixed attention, because 
Today we're talking about the judgments of the world. We're talking about God. We're talking about the fact that he's going to judge and evaluate our lives. We're talking about the fact that there is a heaven and there is a hell. We're talking about the fact that there are books that have in it written the things that we've done. And there's another book that we need to hear about this morning. And God willing, we will hear about that book this morning. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to work through the great white throne judgment text here in Revelation chapter 20. And as I've done so many times in this book of Revelation, I want to remind you that John often, as he's receiving these visions by the, by the Holy Spirit, he's often describing things from different perspectives that have been described multiple times. And here again is another yet case where he's talking about the final judgment, the final judgment. And he's mentioned this before. Multiple times in Revelation, he's told us that there's a judgment to come. Let's just review these really quick. If you have your Bible in your hand, I just want you to flip back with me and let's just recall that this is not the first time he's mentioned a judgment. In fact, there's been several. So back in chapter 11, verse 15, we hear of the seventh trumpet. That is one of the iterations of the final judgment. It's not a different final judgment. It's the same thing but described in somewhat metaphorical terms. And then flip ahead to chapter 14, where we saw this text on the harvest of the earth. Then There again, there's a literary motif here that is one of a harvest rather than a courtroom scene, but that too was a description of the final judgment. And then again, flip one more to chapter 16, where we saw the seventh bull judgment, this time a picture of a bull being poured out. But once again, Another description of, with different figurative language here, the final judgment. And so when we come to chapter 20, the end of chapter 20, our text today, we're reminded that there's going to be a judgment at the end of the world. And so this is yet another description of that great judgment. But this one is, uh, it is far more transparently so. Why? Because we have here described a throne. We have a judge sitting on that throne we have those who are called to the bar of judgment, that is to say the whole world. We have evidence being read before the courtroom, that's what's written in the books. There's a verdict that is going to be read, and then there's a sentence that's going to be carried out. That is stock, typical language of a judgment scene. And Revelation 20 gives us this judgment also transparently. And so I want to be very clear and describing these things to you this morning. So here's my approach. We're going to have three main points in the sermon today. Here they are. Get ready for this. First, we're going to consider the greatness of the judge himself. So number one, the greatness of the judge. Secondly, second main point, the content of the books, plural. Books, plural. There are multiple books here in this text that we're going to look at. The content of the books. And then third, there is another book that looms very large in this text, the most important book of all, and we will consider that in due turn as well. So first of all, with Bibles open, here we go, Revelation 20. We're doing this together as a church. We're working through this in an expository manner here. First of all, notice the greatness of the judge in verse 11, the greatness of the judge. John saw this, and he describes it in, this, in these words, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the Greek word, by the way, is the word face. It's the same word, presence or face. Okay, so from his face or from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away 
and no place was found for them. That's a rich metaphor. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. But notice, first of all, that the throne itself gets more description than the judge. Now, that's kind of interesting because the throne gets a couple of adjectives here. It's called the great white throne. And yet the one who is seated upon that throne is just merely called him. Why is it called a great white throne? Well, it's called the great throne, first of all, because in the book of Revelation, if you've been studying with us all of these months, you've probably come to know by this point that there are many different thrones described in Revelation. There are many of them. Surprisingly, even Satan is described as having a throne in one place, and the beast is described as having a throne in chapter 13, verse 2. And the 24 elders sit on many thrones in verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. But we know this throne. This is the great throne in contradistinction to all of the others. This is the, is, this is the throne, and we've seen this before, which is described as having lightning almost constantly emanating from that throne. This is the throne from which the thunders constantly echo. This is the throne... That same throne over which the rainbow resplendent radiance of the glory of God is constantly emitting. This is the throne towards which all of the angels are constantly singing. We've seen this throne before. This is the throne of him who sits upon it. And we know who him is, right? No question there. And it's called a great white throne. Now, in Revelation, obviously, many things are symbolic. One of the things that we've seen that's symbolic is colors. Red, as we've discussed several times, is the, is the color of evil. It's an evil color in the book of Revelation. Those things that are described as red or scarlet are typically very wicked. Uh, the beast is described as red. The dragon is red. The prostitute wears red or scarlet. Every time we see red, we duck because we know that probably persecution or martyrdom is, or blood is going to be shed. Red is a color that alerts us to danger. Red is a color that alerts us to evil and present wickedness. But white throughout the book of Revelation is the color of purity. White is the color of the robes that the saints wear. Yes? White is the color of the, the robes of the martyrs who've been washed by the blood of Christ. White is the color of the great rider in Revelation chapter 19, who is Christ when he rides back in to judge the world, which he is now here doing, he comes in on a, a white, brilliant white steed, which all is a symbol of his faithfulness and his purity and his holiness and his majesty. And so by the time the throne is described, we already know who him who is seated upon the throne is. Who is it? It's the Lord. It's God. It's Christ, it's the majestic one, it's the, the maker of heaven and earth, it is the Lord God Almighty, it's Yahweh, Jehovah, the God who created all things, the only true and living God. He is the one that is seated upon the throne. And therefore, as John describes him, he doesn't need any adjectives because he's been introducing him now for 20 chapters straight. Him is the one on the throne. And, and then look at this. This is very interesting here. Uh, one of the more interesting verses in our text today, it says here, and why does it say this? From his face or from his presence, verse 11, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. What's happening here? Well, this is, this is anthropomorphic language, right? When, when the non, 
living object is described as having human emotions or doing human things. We call that anthropomorphism. It's a figure of speech in which human attributes are attributed to a non-human thing, right? So the, the Bible does this all the time, especially in the poetic book. So for instance, let me just give you a couple examples here of anthropomorphism. Um, like in the Psalms, for instance, Psalm 65.5 says that the, the hills gird themselves with joy. Now, why is that anthropomorphic? Because, because hills don't gird themselves with anything. They don't wear things. And they don't have joy either. They're inanimate objects. And yet the author there is trying to say something about the fact that the creation likewise glorifies the God who is in heaven, right? That's the point. It's anthropomorphic language to describe the hills. Uh, the Psalms do it all the time. Here's another one. The rivers clap their hands. Psalm 99, uh, what is it? 98 verse 8. The rivers clap their hands. Well, they don't have hands. I know that. Obviously, it's anthropomorphism. When Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 19 that the stones will cry out against you, that too is anthropomorphic language, meaning that the earth itself is a witness to what is transpiring here that day. And so, so throughout the Bible, even the creation is described as having these kind of human uh, longings or affections or urges here. And so look again at this text and, and say, what is happening here? The earth and the sky, they're doing what? They're fleeing from the Lord. They fled away and there was no place found for them. It's almost as though to say that the creation itself recognizes the magnitude of this moment and they want to flee away from the judge. Why? Because he's terrifying. He's holy and he's righteous. He's also good. But he's the judge. Now, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, uh, I have to discipline one of my children. <laughs> that ever happened to you? Of course it does. And I've noticed that whenever I'm calling one of my children to account, that very often the others just happen to flee away. Why is that? Because they want nothing of that discipline that is happening in that moment. Okay? And so this is very natural for us. When God shows up in Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve have sinned, what do they do? They flee from him. They hide in the bushes and they construct garments for themselves that can't actually hide them. And here what we're being told in this momentous moment is that the creation itself wants to flee away from this great and terrible judge because they know exactly what is coming. And yet no place was found for them they could not hide. It's like a child hiding under his or her blanket when he's terrified. And yet we know that he's right there. He's the lump underneath the quilt, right? And so all of this is to set up this scene of judgment that is to come. Creation itself is fleeing, and yet what happens next? Well, let's look secondly, this is our second main point here, at the content of the books. Okay, look at verse 12. Now I'm going to skip a line on purpose for rhetorical purposes here. I'm doing this on purpose. I'm not going to make a mistake, I hope, when I read this. But I want you to notice in verse 12 the content of the books and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural. Now notice that, books, plural. Make mark of that, that's important. They were open. Now here I'm going to skip a line. And the dead were judged then by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. So John here in his vision, 
he's making a very clear point to observe that what is going to come out of this books is going to pertain to everybody. Because he specifically says here, the dead, both great and small. So if you ask, who is it that is subject to this judgment here? The answer is absolutely everybody. The dead, both great and small. That means that in this moment, that there is nothing that is going to be able to excuse you and me from having to stand before him in that moment. Whether you are great in this life or whether you are small in this life, that is irrespective of the fact that you are going to be judged before the great white throne. Whether people loved you in this life or whether they despised you in this life, that does not matter here. Whether you have titles or whether you have ranks or whether you have a name that is known or unknown, again, that is totally irrelevant here. Absolutely every single person who's ever lived, and not only the living, but also the dead. It specifically emphasizes the dead, doesn't it? They're going to have to come before this throne judgment as well. And so standing before this throne, you can almost picture the scene in your mind, if you will. You have pastors, and you have elders, and you have deacons, and you have children, and you have women, and you have widows, and you have plumbers, and you have electricians, and you have people from countries that you've never even heard of before, and you have the dead now, even the dead, are gonna call, they're going to be called up, and they're going to have to stand before this great and mighty moment of judgment, and there will be no training that could possibly qualify you for this moment. There will be no experience that can prepare you for this. There will be no wisdom that you can call to exempt you from this. There won't even be any ignorance that could excuse you from having to stand before the great white throne. Nothing. Absolutely everybody is called here. And what then is written in the books? These books, plural, that I'm emphasizing here. What is written in these plural books? We'll look at 12c again. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done, okay? So what's in the books? Well, everything that you've done. That would be your thoughts. That would be your words. That would be your deeds. That would be the things that you've done publicly. Uh, Some things that you're ashamed of, some things not so much, even proud a little bit. That would include things that you've done privately. And check this out. Even the things that you've done so privately that you would dread if anybody else were to actually know that you did that. Right? Because because probably, if we're really honest, there's probably some things about you that you've worked very, very hard to conceal from the knowledge of those that you care about. Because if they knew certain things about you, your respect in their eyes might diminish greatly. And we all have things like that in our lives. And apparently what's written in these books are absolutely everything about us. So much so that God, by his almighty omniscience, he can peer into the very thoughts of the heart itself. The heart is the one place where we think, at least only I can come here, right? Everybody else can see my external appearance. Everybody else can judge me by the way I act or the way I talk or the way I misspeak at times. But the heart is like the one place that is at least sacrosanct to me alone. And, and yet even there, uh, there is nothing that can be hidden from the Lord. The Lord sees even into the very thoughts and the hearts of the man himself. Now here, look at verse 13. I found this to be interesting, and I don't exactly know what to do this. I'll, with, with this, I'll be honest, but I'm going to try my best. Um, 
Look at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them. So it's not, again, it's not just the living, but it's the dead here that will be judged. And why does it say that the sea gave up the dead? Now, I had to really puzzle about this, and I'm not sure I fully understand it. So some of you can correct me later if you have another interpretation. Uh, some people say that the sea, to, to a Jewish mind, is a place of mystery and chaos. Okay, something very hard to understand. Going even back to Genesis 1 in the first couple of verses, the sea is something like this chaotic place of disorder, sometimes in, in, in Jewish language. I'm not sure that that's what's in mind here uh, because of the language of death and Hades. Now let's focus in on Hades for a moment because, uh, as we know, there's heaven and there's hell. But then Hades, or Sheol, is kind of this concept of the abode of the dead, right? It's, it's, not, like a, like a, it's not like a purgatory. Please don't think of that. That's a contrived doctrine with no biblical foundation. But, but Hades is something like the state or the place of the dead. And if, if you were to ask somebody, well, where is Hades? Where is Sheol? Is it up or is it down? Where would they point? They'd say down. It's usually described as down. And so very often in the Psalms or the poetic books, for instance, Hades or Sheol is conceived of as being down. And why is that? Well, because we bury people in the ground when they're dead. But here, notice this, that it's not just the dead in Hades or Sheol or those who are buried in the ground who, who are yielded up to the judgment seat, but even the sea. And so here's what I, I take it to be the interpretation, although I could be wrong and I'm glad to be corrected here. I think what John is saying here is something like even those whose bodies are lost at sea are yet not going to be lost at the great judgment here. Okay? So even if your body is lost at sea, a sailor for instance, and you are eaten by the sharks, and what is not eaten by the sharks is eaten by the fish, and what is not eaten by the fish is dissolved by the salt water, and what is not dissolved by the salt water is scattered to a thousand shores all over the earth, yet even still God will reconstitute the person so as to call them to the judgment seat now, I think is what is saying here in this text. So this is just another way of trying to describe the absolutely exhaustive sense of this judgment that every single one of us in the room is going to have to face at some point. Now, let's go on to verse 14 and look at the finality of the judgment, and then we're going to shift from the books, plural, to the book. And I think you'll find some good news there. But first, let's consider the finality of the judgment. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. So even the judgment itself is finalized, and death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, now let's just pause and reflect on this a little bit because uh, we live here in Western society, and that's, uh, that's a very blessed thing, I think, for most of us because a lot of Western society is, is constructed on at least our civilization, our laws, and some of our, our court proceedings are based on a, on a Christian worldview of what justice is, right? And so here in the Western world, in our court proceedings, we have a process known as the appeal. And thank goodness we have appeals. Why do we have appeals in the Western world? Some places don't, but we do. Well, because in, in the Western world, being built, our society is on, a, on the foundation of a, of a Christian subtext, 
we know that courts can and do error from time to time. And so we've built into our legal system a process of appeal. Why do you need an appeal? Because sometimes the judge is corrupt. Sometimes the jury is ill-informed. Sometimes evidence that should not be permitted is permitted into the court. And so there's a process of appeal. Or contrary, sometimes evidence that shouldn't be included is, and sometimes evidence that is shouldn't be included, right? So all these things can go wrong in the courtroom. The lawyers can be corrupt. The lawyers can be inept. Uh, the right rule might be followed, but the rule itself is unjust, or just rules are followed unjustly. There's so many things that can go wrong in the human courtroom. And so what do we have as heirs to Western culture built on a framework of, of Christian views of justice? We have in our system a process of appeal, thankfully. Praise God for that. Because if you're ever convicted, you're going to want an appeal. But here, in this great courtroom, there is no process nor even possibility of appeal. Why? Why? Because the judge cannot error. There is no piece of data that escapes his omniscience. He knows absolutely everything and he applies the law consistently and with justice every single time. So there is no process of appeal. So after this judgment is over, what happens next? Death and Hades are just thrown into the lake of fire. It's over. And Gospel Fellowship PCA, you need to understand that if we are left to the works that are described in the books, plural, there is no hope for any one of us. No hope at all. Okay. And so just when we think that this text is getting pretty dark, here then we want to introduce another book. Look down at your text again. Verse 12. This is the verse that I purposely skipped when I was reading verse 12 earlier because I wanted to save it for this moment. Then another book was opened. Praise God. <laughs> here comes your deliverance, saints. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Okay? So this book is different from the books. What is written in the books is everything you've ever done. But is written in the book of life are names. Like we're told that names are written in the book of life. Not your, not your evil deeds, not all of your sins, not your trespasses. Names are written in the book of life. Now here's what I was going to do. And that pavilion, ill-fated rain sermon that I didn't get to finish that night. I was going to take you through some of the references to the book of life and the book of Revelation. So let's recapture that moment that I lost and follow me here. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 13, my text that night. And we're going to glean as much about this another book as we can. 13.8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Now, that's in reference to, uh, to the evil one, okay? Previous context. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Okay, so this is the same book. This is another book. This is the another book that we're talking about in Revelation 20. And what is it called here? It is called the book of life of the Lamb. 
Okay, so who is the author of this book? It's the Lamb. This is good news. Because the Lamb is the Savior, right? The Lamb is the one who gave His life for the salvation of His people. The book belongs to Jesus. The book is authored by Jesus. You know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Do you know John 3.17? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the, the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Okay? So this is a good book. The book of life. It belongs to the Lamb. He is the author. And if the author is a person of great benevolence and compassion and mercy and grace, then so also is the book that he wrote, right? This is a book of deliverance. Okay, now let's go ahead to another verse where we look at the same Lamb's book of life here. Uh, We're going to ask next, when was this book written? Go with me to chapter 17, verse 8. Similar language here making a distinction between those who are lost and those who are saved, right? Revelation 17, verse 8, midway through, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Okay, question. When was this book of life written? We know the author now. When was it written? What does it say? whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So this is a book that contains the gracious names of those whom God has determined to save with his electing, predestining grace. This book was written before the world was founded. This also is very good news. Because that means that nothing can happen in this life to snatch your name out of it if it was written before the foundation of the world. So we know the author, Uh, we know the title, we know the contents of this book. There's one more reference to it in chapter 21, verse 27, that I want to look at this morning. Flip with me ahead to a verse that we're going to come to later, again, as we finish chapter 21, after Christmas, 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it. This is describing heaven here. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose... Names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay? So this book also contains the names of those who've been justified. Okay? Otherwise, uh, you would be unclean. But as it stands, now that you've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, your record is unblemished in His sight. You have received what, what Elder Ray prayed about in our prayer of confession, the righteousness of Christ. Your sin transposed to him. He dies for it. You receive the righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, 21-27 is true. Uh, Nothing unclean will enter into it, but you won't be unclean then. You will be cleaned by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now let's go back to our main text today. Go back to chapter uh, 20 and look at verse 15 again. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But we can say that another way. We can say that more positively, can't we? We can say it like this. If anyone's name was found in the book of life, he was not thrown into the lake of fire. And so therein is the deliverance of God's people by grace through faith in the Lamb of God. Now, let me add a little wrinkle here, a little nuance to this book of life, because 
if we know the author and we know the title of the book and we know the date of its composition and we know generally its contents, the one thing we don't know about the book of life is whose names are written in it. Because you and I, we can't open the cover, can we? We can't peer into the book of life and know who would, who, whose names are written in there or not. If I could do that, it would make pastoral life a whole lot easier. Because if I could look into the book of life and see whether your name was written there or not, I would know how much time to spend with each one of you and how much I could invest in any one of your lives. Unfortunately, nobody can do that. And so what do we do? What's the pastoral dilemma? Well, on one hand, we sort of assume that maybe you need to hear the gospel. And so we just keep preaching the gospel, trusting that God is going to, in time, call to saving faith those whose names are in the book of life. And so we, we constantly proclaim the gospel, trusting that God himself is going to do the work of salvation. And, and, and not only that, but I also can think very charitably of you because I can also assume that you are, right? So I, I can, on one hand, assume that you need to hear the message. On the other hand, I can assume that you need to hear the message so as to comfort you with the gospel. Though I don't know, I can't read the names who are written in the book of life here. Now, let me finish up this morning uh, with just a couple of questions for you to think about as you examine your own life and your own heart in light of this text this morning. Three questions for you. Uh, Please think seriously on these questions. Remember, you agreed that you were going to give me your life or death attention this morning, right? I'm, I'm calling you to the carpet on that. You promised that. First question. What will be written of you in the books, plural, those dreadful books that contain everything that we've ever done. What is going to be written of you? Um, Because, the reason I ask is because if, if um, if you're an abusive person, let's say, then that is going to be made manifestly clear. And there will be nothing that you could do to hide that fact from becoming known. If, if you have proclivities towards greed and lust, let's say, just by way of example, that is going to be made known in that day. If you are the kind of person that is prone to bouts of uncontrollable anger, the books will make that known. There will be no way that you can conceal that. Uh, if you are addicted to any substance, be it alcohol or drugs or pornography, the book is going to make that, the books, plural, is going to make that very clear. And so let me just, I mean, why don't we just think about that and say for a moment, do I like what is going to be written about me on that day exposed? Do I like that? If I don't, then without getting philosophically overcomplicated here, why don't you just change? If you're, if you're on a course of self-destruction now, why don't you turn from that course? The books will record that too, like Manasseh. Remember Manasseh from the Old Testament? One of the most wicked kings. And yet the, that book, at least, records the fact that he changed. So, so if, you're, if you're bent on a course of self-destruction, why don't you simply change? Now maybe you'll say to me, because I can't change. And I agree with that. You can't. But you can call out to the one who can change you. Okay, you can do that even today. And so if you don't like the person that you are, if you don't like the person that you're becoming, if you don't like the person that you're going to be unless you change, then I say to you, change, turn. Go to him who can help you. Okay. 
That's the first question. Do you like what is going to be written of you in the book? Second question. Do you believe your name to be written in the another book? The book of life. Do you think your name is in there? As of right now, where you're sitting today, do you believe your name is in that book? I don't know. What do you think about yourself? If you think it is, let's tease that out. Why do you think it is in the book of life? On what basis? Give me a rationale. Give me an explanation. Why do you believe your name is in the book of life? If you reply to me because I am a good person and I have done much to help others and my life is upstanding and filled with integrity, if you tell me that you think your name is in the book of life because others generally think fondly of you, I will point you back to the books again and I will say you've missed the point of the entire sermon. If your name is in the book of life, singular, it's not because of what you've done in the books, for goodness sake. Please know that. If you think your name is in the book of life, please don't point to your life as the evidence for that. Point to his life. Point to Christ. Point to the gospel. Point to the cross. Point to the blood of the Lamb. You don't want to get this wrong. It's too important for that. Third question. If you think your name is in the book of life, and the reason that you give is because of Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross, then my question for you is, does that not bring you great comfort even today? I hope it should. Because if your name is in the book of life, then that means it has been written before the foundation of the world, and it is so secure, your salvation is, that as Jesus said, nobody can snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus said about his people. What does Paul say about those who are saved? He says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the past or the future, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If your name is in the book of life, and it's because you point to Jesus as the, the means and the mechanism for that, then you can take absolute confidence and comfort that you are secure in his grace forever, even so that you might stand on this great day before the throne. With that in mind,